We are in Romans this morning, and our text is Romans 10, verse 13 through 21. Romans 10, 13 through 21. And as we go there this morning, let's pray. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would cause a breakthrough this morning in our lives. That he would break us, break our hearts, break us from doing business as usual, break us from all the foolishness that sometimes exists in human relations. Lord God, We come to you with nothing in our hands. Nothing. We have nothing to offer you but our sin. And we come this morning, Lord, asking that you would just pour out your spirit on us. That your word would be preached with power and conviction and that everybody here would have the same purpose to hear your voice and your word and would be eschewing any distraction. Any distraction. So we pray that you would open our hearts and do a work this morning that hasn't been done in a very long time. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of God. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient 
and contrary people. The Word of God. This passage is so clear that I could sit down right now. But it's my job to expound it to you, and I want to make it as plain as possible. Are you here to listen? I am, too. I love lamps. Putting on a lamp in a dark room after work is very enjoyable for me, especially as the days are getting shorter, the nights are getting longer. It's a warm and inviting thing. It makes me think of my father who used to collect antique lamps with my Uncle Henry. And Uncle Henry had a big red Cadillac and I, a little boy, sat in the back seat and loved to hear them talk about the issues of the day and I would glean from them. Spiritually speaking, a church is a lamp. On the Lord's Day in the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John tells us in Revelation 1 and 2, he heard a voice. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mysteries of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven lampstands. I know your works, your toil, 
and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Evangelism is the great privilege of the church. God could have preached his word from the clouds without any human participation. But he chose the means to accomplishment, chiefly the foolishness of preaching. God gave us the unspeakable privilege of participating in his majestic program of redemption, which he planned before the foundation of the world. No preacher is indispensable. Cemeteries are filled with indispensable people. God does not need preachers to accomplish his purposes of redemption. He did not need Isaiah. He did not need Jeremiah. He did not need the Apostle Paul. God has given, however, men the most sacred vocation possible, carrying this treasure and earthly vessels. Beloved, listen. Nobody is going to put their trust in a Savior whom they do not believe is capable of saving them. When I have a plumbing problem, I don't call the grocery store. I call the plumber. Because I have no reason to believe that the grocery store can fix my problem. Likewise, when I face the deepest problem of human existence, escaping the wrath to come, why would I put any trust in or call upon somebody else unless I first believed he was able to redeem me? Belief is a precondition, a necessary condition to calling upon him. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? Millions have never heard the name of Jesus. And they're not going to put their trust in someone they know nothing about. And that includes some of your family members and your friends. They don't know anything about Jesus. And maybe you know a little, but not enough. You cannot possibly believe in Jesus when you know nothing about him. One of the things that sets Christianity off from other world religions is that it deals with objective truth and with facts of history. Unless the facts are proclaimed, the message is not Christianity. Unless the facts are understood and believed, the faith that follows is not true faith, no matter how intense the feelings are. Saving faith requires information. That is why the church is commanded to go, to go to every corner of the world and make the message plain to everyone. Not just to our local community, but to our local community, our region, and indeed the world. I pray this same thing every Sunday after receiving the morning offering. I say the same words that the gifts that are brought in would be used to proclaim the gospel of God in Gardner, greater Gardner, and into the ends of the earth. That's what Acts 1.8 says. And today, we have the ability to reach someone around the world. All these countries and all these states. Your offerings are being used to take the gospel directly, presently, to 41 states and 39 countries. The last three sermons we posted on sermon audio on Romans were number 15, 19, and 15 in 48 hours of posting. Listen, beloved. A church that participates in community events and helps in local community endeavors is not a church unless in everything it does, it makes the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ primary and vocal. We are witnesses, and witnesses are not silent. Can you imagine? I call Jim to the stand. Jim comes to the stand and he doesn't speak. State your name. Where do you live? Tell us what you know. There's no such thing as a silent witness. Witnesses speak. I have a friend in this church, dear beloved brother, we went to a church that had a community outreach event every year. 
And it was colossal. But the one thing we didn't do was give out the gospel. And thousands of people came from the community to buy what we were selling. It was food. But we didn't give them the gospel. Our church must speak the gospel of grace in everything we get involved in because we are here to be a lampstand. And if we do not speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus will take away our lampstand and no one and nothing will be able to stop him. Why are churches dying? Why are churches closing? Because the church has lost its way. It's lost its primary mission of taking the gospel to the world. Your world. You have a world you live in. It's a little world. I don't know. I don't know about your world. But you have a world. Are you taking the gospel to your world? I have a world. Am I taking the gospel to my world? And as a church, are we taking the gospel everywhere we can? We do probably better at that than we do with personal mission. But no longer can we throw a couple bucks at somebody who is in another nation and think that we've done it. Beloved, don't work that way. It never did. And you know what happens? People leave the church. People die. Church gets smaller. The budget gets smaller. Everybody becomes an accountant. Look how to cut costs. And the real problem is nobody is preaching the gospel to anybody else. I've seen more church deaths than anybody in this place, I bet. And they're all the same. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one who trusts in the Lord will be put to shame on that great day. Whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how do people come? They come through heralds, through angelos, through preachers and evangelists. Paul opens with a chain that begins at the end point, calling on the Lord. How then will they call on him they have not believed? How are they are to believe of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful 
are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's reasoning is spot on. If anyone calls on the name of the Lord, that person will be saved. But to call, you got to believe. And to believe, you got to know who you're believing in. And before anyone proclaims, that person must be sent out. Paul does not invite volunteers to apply. He says that God must send preachers. In our nation today, we have a shortage of preachers. There are not enough preachers. There are more churches than there are preachers. Preaching is falling on hard times. But when Jesus surveyed the crowds of Israel, he saw they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He told his disciples, do you pray this? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord would send laborers unto the harvest. Fields are white. There's a harvest. It's not like there's not enough people who will believe in the Christ. There's not enough laborers. Go get them. That's the issue. We think, oh, no one believes in them anymore. That's not true. That's not true. Jesus prayed, called 12 disciples, commissioned them. And of course, there's a shortage of preachers. There's a shortage of preachers who are called to preach. Not every preacher who preaches is called to preach. Did you know that? Now, Paul was doing this very thing. He wanted to reach the world, and he was doing it with the help of the church in the city of Rome. He wanted to preach as far as Spain. That would have been the end of the known world when you're sitting in the Mediterranean basin. That's where he wanted to get. But instead, he found himself in a hole carved out in a rock waiting to die at the hand of crazy Nero who killed him. Belief requires knowledge of the claims of Christ. Do they know the people in your life? Do they know that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king? Do they know what that means? Do they know anything of Jesus? And it says this, and there's an ambiguity in it that's so beautiful. It says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? There are two possible translations to this. It could mean this. How will they believe the one of whom they did not hear? Or how will they believe the one whom they did not hear? Do they hear about him? Or do they hear him? I submit to you, it's both. They hear about him, and they hear him. 
in the preaching of the word. To the extent that I preach to you and my preaching is biblical, you have heard the word of the Lord. If my preaching is not biblical, then you have not. You see, in America, many people have heard just enough about Jesus to be inoculated. Remember, inoculation just gives you a little bit of the strain and you build up resistance to it. There are people that know just enough about Jesus to put up resistance. Oh, I don't want to hear about that. No thanks, man. Because they don't know about Jesus. How are they here How will they hear without someone preaching? Proclaiming. Preaching is essential. And it's weird because the communication theorists say that a person standing up giving you a monologue for 40 minutes is passe, man. Like, people will fall asleep. That's why I yell and everything and I dance around. (laughs) So you won't fall asleep. And usually don't. I usually don't see anybody sleeping. Just so, I'm so blessed by that. If you fall asleep, I'm going to jump on you. And I'm no ballet dancer, I'll tell you that. But you know, the pundits can say what they want, but Jesus and the Lord God said what he wanted, and that is people come to the Lord through preaching. So you are justified in inviting people to church, of course, hearing the preaching. Skill in speaking is valuable in preaching, but orthodox is mandatory, right? If the preacher isn't orthodox, if his belief is not biblical, get rid of him! Preachers got to preach if people are going to believe. That's the first point. How shall they hear without a preacher? And they have to be sent. You know what the word sent is? Missia. We get the word mission. You and I are on a mission together. Why do you think we named the church Mission of Grace? Because we just picked it out of a hat and sound good? No, because we're on a mission of grace. That's why. Remember that. If you ever lose your way, we're on the mission of grace, bro. Mission of grace. We're here to bring the grace of God and make it known to everyone we can while we still have time. And the clock is ticking down. Either you're getting older and your parts are wearing out and you're going to die or Jesus is coming back whichever shall come first. But time is running out. It's closer today than it was yesterday. Amen? And so we know, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. What does that mean? Why is he talking about feet? Well, there's a good reason. Get this. In the 5th century B.C., when the Greeks We're at war with the Persians. Three great historic battles occurred. In the Battle of the Plain, 
a man named Pheidippides was commissioned as a runner. The plane was called Marathon. And Pheidippides ran 26 miles to the city of Athens from the plain of Marathon to tell them the news that they had been defeated, that is, the other guys, the good news. We won. Because he didn't have a cell phone. He couldn't text them. He had to run there 26 miles. Could you do it? I couldn't. I'd be dead after the first couple hundred feet. <laughs> Why do we call a marathon a marathon? Isn't it interesting that a marathon is 26 miles? We call it a marathon because of this. And so when Pheidippides was running 26 miles, he didn't have sketchers on. He didn't have track shoes on. He had sandals on. And probably the sandals might have broke by the time he got there. He wasn't traveling down a road. He wasn't traveling down a sandy, soft bed of flowers. He was running the craggy Palestine, Greek land. And his feet were cut. And dirty and smelled and gross and hurt and hot. And you know what they said? How beautiful are those feet because they brought that message of victory. Same way with you when you take your smelly feet somewhere and you bring the message to someone else, good news to someone else, you tell them about Jesus, your feet are beautiful, even though we would not touch them, not take your corns off, not want to be involved in your plantar fasciitis, or any other, your long, thick, yellow toenails. We would want to be involved but your feet are beautiful. There was a man in Africa who had elephantiasis. That's when everything swells. Legs swell, his feet swelled, and he was converted when he was talking to his doctor in West Africa. And after he became a Christian, he witnessed to everything that moved. And one particular day, he went to every village and every hut that he could to tell them about Jesus Christ. And then at the end of the day, there was one more village 10 miles away, and with his elephantitis swollen feet, he went 10 miles, and he preached the gospel to every hut in that village. And on the way home... His feet were cut and bleeding and swollen, and he was in terrible shape. He dragged himself to the doctor's house, knocked on the door, and dropped at the man's feet. And the man brought him in and worked on his smelly, 
dirty, swollen, cut feet, and the doctor cried because his feet were beautiful. He brought the gospel everywhere he could, and his feet were beautiful. You don't need a passport. You don't need to go on a short-term missions trip. You got people in your own world that don't know the gospel. Senders got to send if preachers are going to preach. You got to send. Who sends them? God does. This is God's work. No one can take it lightly. We're not self-appointed, right, pastors? I didn't wake up one morning and said, oh boy, I love to be a pastor. I want to apply to my local church. No, I was going in the opposite direction. And I said, no, nah, I can't do that. But in 1997, I was called to be a pastor. And in 2013, I was sent by you to be a pastor. You're sending me. Darling, you send me. Darling, you do. You send me. We're going to unreached areas of Massachusetts. We're going to unreached areas of the world. The world! And don't forget America, which is really bad right now. There's only one crime worse, says the African proverb, than murder. And that is to be in the desert and not to tell people where the water is you know where the water is. It's your job to tell others where it is. We've got to tell everyone. Beloved, what we're engaged in here together as a church is incredible. The most difficult job in the world is preaching. I know. Um, being a lawyer is easier. Satan attacks the local church most fiercely. And it takes one toxic person to kill a church. Just one. If I were you, I'd be looking at myself, making I'm sure that I wasn't that toxic person. Make sure, chelate yourself, as the doctors say, that your toxicity comes out of your veins. It only takes one toxic person to kill a church because the church is potentially the most powerful instrument on the face of the earth. It's not about politics. It's not about your 401k. It's not about your pension, about your money. It's not about having a good time as you retire. It's about eternal life. In Jesus Christ. We're all going to die, folks. 
And the only place you learn how to die is here. You can all die well after you get done with this. I've known people dying in their beds singing hymns. Pained like you never read about. And they're singing hymns saying, I can't wait, I can't wait. That's how you die. Not, oh. Right? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? I tell my brother that. What's the worst thing that can happen? Is your pastor all you'd like him to be? I'm going to have an out-of-body moment right now. This is an out-of-body moment, okay? I'm coming out of me. Dave, this is David. <clears throat> now I'm going to be somebody else. Coming out of body. Is your pastor all you'd like him to be? If not, could the reason be that you aren't interceding for him? Protecting him from the fierce assaults of the enemy? The subtle seductions of the demonic realm? Do you realize that anytime we try to do something good and make a move, we're going to be opposed? Right? If you'd like some improvement in the pastoral ministry of your church, start on your knees. Now I'm back in my body again. Okay. The other part of this whole preaching thing is that no matter what we do, the Word of God has to be central. Every ministry of the church should have the Word of God central, right? Nothing we do should not have the Word of God central to it. We're wasting our time if we do, right? We don't go down and get involved in Oktoberfests and things unless the Word of God is central. I don't want to do any ministries, have any yard sales, sell chicken soup, help the poor, do all these things. You'll always have the poor among you. Unless the Word of God is primary. If you save somebody a meal, but don't save their soul, did you do it? And who else knows the message but the church? We're the only people that know. If we stop telling people, who's going to tell them? Tucker Carlson? I mean, <laughs> I heard a groan. <laughs> who's going to tell them? You know, if you won't, ain't nobody going to. You believe that? If you ain't going to do it, ain't nobody going to do it. Ain't nobody. And guess what? I could give you verses that say sending a preacher. Here's, the, here's the, another out-of-body experience. Sending a preacher involves supporting a preacher. Amen. Did you know that being a bivocational pastor is not the way it's supposed to be? That, and it says it in the Word, Would you like me to quote them? I will. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 14. Is there only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? 
Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he certainly not speak for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow and hope and the thresher thresh and hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Do you not know that those employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I don't. I have to do two jobs. And I ain't complaining. When I started here in 2013, there were 20 people and the, ra- the wages, I believe, were $300 a week. Part-time. Sunday. Wednesday. Came Thursday. Practiced law. Represented the church. Was the chief e- executive officer of the church, the administrator of the church. The lawyer for the church the secretary for the church, the church. I could have been the treasurer, but that would have been a conflict of interest. So we had a poor guy who served for 25 years as a temporary treasurer. God bless him. Tent-making pastors are the exception, folks, not the rule. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Let your generosity be a reflection of the honor you put on the ministry of the word of God and your commitment to Christ to send a preacher do you tithe do you give you know nobody knows whether you give well except the treasurer treasurer knows if you give but nobody knows whether you tithe we don't take your tax returns and, <laughs> and see what you oh let's see 10% of that nobody knows what, what, whether you tithe or not only you and God know right you see, people, not only are there not enough ministers, and there are not enough called and qualified ministers, but there are also not people who send because they don't give. And everybody can give. It's just a matter of how much, right? It's our job. That's how we worship God. Luther was right. The last part of a man to be converted is his checkbook. So, the preaching of the word is necessary. 
But guess what? People will reject it. Don't think that if you make the most sincere and honest efforts of bringing the gospel to your world or bringing people to church, that we are foolish failures because people will reject it. No, no, no. They will. People will reject Christ. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus Christ in favor of their own sin. And that's the tragedy, isn't it? But that doesn't mean that we should be daunted, that we should not be doing anything. No, 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 no. We should be, even if people reject. Because more will reject than those who will be saved. We know that. But it is our job to be very bold, to preach the word. Remember Paul? I talked about him in that hole, that hole of rock, and he was writing a book, a letter to Timothy. What did he say when he was in this hole, about to be killed, his head separated from his shoulders? What did he tell Timothy? Preach the word. That's what he said. Can you imagine? Would you be saying that if you were about to get killed? Preach the word. Charles Hodge said, I never had a novel idea. I don't think I have either. All our ideas come from the Bible. We're preaching the Bible. We're preaching the same thing. There's nothing to be made up here. I have to go quickly and feel the time. But I want to leave you with this. With this. Just give me a few seconds. Revival would come to our country if every church member in America would say, I'm never again going to ask the minister to administrate the affairs of the church or be responsible to finance it. I want him to be free to feed me and others the word of God. If we do anything to not discharge our trust. And that goes on. We will lose our lampstand. We will. And nothing will stop it. Jesus says, I have this sin against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. I'm going to say that do the works you did in 1894. You're looking at me saying, what? I wasn't alive in 1894. Give me just one minute to explain. This church started in 1894. Will Durant said this, Rome remained great as long as she had enemies who forced her to unity, vision, and heroism. When she had overcome all her enemies, she flourished for a moment, then began to die. You see, it was opposition that kept Rome strong. It keeps us strong. That's why God permits us to have opposition to keep us strong as a church. It's not going to be a walk in the park. Nothing is going to be a walk in the park. If you know Christ and try to accomplish anything for him, you will experience opposition. You will, especially if you're in leadership. 
no one's going to have an easy time of it. Andrew Group was the first pastor of our church. He was born in Finland. At age 21, he became a Christian. At age 22, he came here and settled in the great city of Fitchburg. He spoke only Swedish. He was from Finland. Industry and immigration were booming in Fitchburg. He took a job at the Putnam machine shops. He started worshiping at the Calvinistic Congregational Church on Main Street in Fitchburg. Church building's still there. They encouraged him to go to seminary. He did it. Five years later, he came back. And at the age of 26, they ordained him at the Calvinistic Congregational Church. It was a tearful scene as they had the hand of a Swede, the hand of a Finn, the hand of a Norwegian, and the hand of an American on his shoulders. And he brought the gospel to Finnish people in Fitchburg. Then he planted a church in Gardner, this one. Then he planted a church in Maynard, that one. The Maynard church is dead. Gardner is alive. Fitchburg is alive. Then he went on to plant churches in Troy, New Hampshire, Quincy, Worcester, Douglas, Cape Ann, Alston, West Paris, Maine, and others. He was a church planter. Andrew Group. You're standing on his shoulders right now. Or you're sitting on his shoulders. What motivated him? A love for souls. A love for souls. He cared about souls. This is the day of opportunity. Do you care about souls? William Carey said this, the souls of men, eternal things, all of the utmost importance, their value beyond estimation, their danger beyond conception, and their duration equal with eternity. These, my dear friend, we have to do with. These, my dear friend, we have to give an account for. Pray for me, and God help me to pray for you. Amen. Our Lord and our God, may these words find residence in our hearts. In your name, amen.